Okay, church, if you could please open up to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We're going to continue our study in this book this morning. We went through chapter 13 last week, but we skipped over verses 4 through 7 in order to come back to them. I think you'll see why over the next three weeks. At least I anticipate it being three weeks. As you're turning to 1 Corinthians 13, I'm going to uh, reference a phrase that I think that most of us will be familiar with, even if you haven't seen the movie. You probably know this phrase. There's this phrase from a movie that is just stuck, burned into the recesses of my mind for whatever reason. Stupid is as stupid does. We all have these flashes of Forrest Gump coming back to us. It's a movie that I watched countless times when I was younger and And at some point, I remember watching the movie and thinking, I didn't understand most of what I'm seeing when I was younger. It's funny how that works in life. But I'll tell you, one thing that stuck with me with the movie is this phrase. And I got to doing some some looking into this, and actually this phrase was a popular phrase in the culture that evolved from a different phrase. The phrase is, beauty is as beauty does. And that phrase goes all the way back to 1862 when it was first recorded. So anyway, the point of the phrase, no matter which one you use, is pretty simple. A certain quality is revealed by certain actions. True beauty is in what one chooses to do rather than what one looks like. Or in the case of Forrest Gump, true stupidity is in what one does rather than how one looks. The Bible echoes a similar sentiment in the book of James. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Well, this morning, the sermon title is, Love is as love does. And our main point this morning, our main idea, we are to love others the way that God loves us. We are to love others the way that God loves us. So we're continuing, for some brief context, we're continuing the eighth topic in the book of 1 Corinthians, spiritual gifts and order in the church. That spans chapters 12 through 14. And then right in the middle of this topic, we have this chapter on love that is related to this topic at large. We looked through the whole chapter last week, and now we're returning to look at this famous description here in verses 4 through 7. So hopefully you're there, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4. I'm going to invite everyone to stand together for the reading of God's holy word. Just as a reminder that we are not about to approach the mere opinion of man, but the divine word of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. I mean chapter 13, verse 4. Here we go. Love is patient and kind, Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, you who inspired Your holy word, we ask that you would now illuminate your holy word. That we might see and behold wondrous truths from your law. 
We ask you to do this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Thank you, church. You can be seated. So if you'll remember last week, I spoke about how love isn't just what we do, it's how we do what we do also. Love isn't an emotion or a feeling, though it certainly will stir those things up sometimes. If I'm in love with someone, I am exhibiting loving actions towards them. Well, part of that action is how I feel. So that is encompassed. But it isn't some mystical state that our culture believes that you can just fall into or fall out of, such that one moment, oh, I've just fallen deeply in love, and then days, weeks, months, years Sometimes decades later, someone say, well, I used to love you, but I fell out of love. That is not how the Bible understands love. It is a way that we decide to act or decide not to act. And the first way we see this is actually at the very end of chapter 12. I'm going to go back and read verse 31, the second half, or the whole verse. I'll read the whole verse for us. He says, earnestly desire the higher gifts, talking about spiritual gifts. And then it says, I will show you a still more excellent way. Now notice he doesn't say a still more excellent gift. Desire the higher gifts. We would expect him to say, I will show you a more excellent gift. So what he's about to explain is not a gift. Love is not a gift. It is a way that the spiritual gift is exercised. And it's the same with Christian service. Love is the way that we do the things that we do. We don't just say, "Ah, there, loved you, did it, wonderful. When I leave the house in the mornings and I tell my wife, I love you, I haven't, like, loved someone in that moment. I've said words. Now, I may have said those words in a loving way that expressed my commitment and devotion to someone, but it isn't a thing that we do. It is a way that what we do happens. Just a little further down, to drive this point home before we begin looking at our our list of of words here, in verses 1 through 3, Paul, we looked at this last week, Paul gives these different exercising of spiritual gifts. If I speak in tongues of men and angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers, understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Each of these are things that we do. It is the exercising of a spiritual gift. And if we do them without love, we have not loved. Now, Paul uses this phrase, have not, three times but have not love, but have not love. So the question is, what does it mean to have love? Is it something that I can purchase or I can buy and hold? Is it something I can put in the palm of my hands? What is it? In today's verses, Paul gives us the answer by describing it. Only he does not use adjectives to describe love. Now, for those of you who are like me, not a huge fan of English, you know we speak the language, so we just have to deal with it, okay? English teachers, you can come and correct me on some of these things later, but I'm pretty sure that these are going to be very accurate descriptions here. An adjective is something that describes a noun, 
Okay? So we have loved this thing, and if we're describing it, we would expect to see adjectives describing it, but that's not what we see here. Instead, Paul uses verbs. Now, this is confusing for us in our English translation because we see, okay, love is patient. Well, patient is, is an adjective. That's not a verb. We don't say Garrett patiented someone. We would say something like, to be patient. We, we take that and turn it into an adjective. So our English translations are a little misleading on this, not uh, out of any kind of intentionality, but just because our language is not the Greek language. It doesn't work the same way. So we can kind of pick up on this whole idea without knowing that, but it's at least noteworthy. I went back and looked every single description here in the Greek. He begins in verse 4, and he doesn't just call it love. He calls it the love, and he repeats that word over and over. The love patiences. He's using the word patient as a verb, something that you do. The love patiences. Then he says, kinds the love. The love kinds people. Well, we don't have an English way of saying that. So how do we have to say it? Well, love is patient. Love is kind. But it's important for us to recognize what he is doing here. I believe the correct term for this is a participle. It's taking a verb and using it to function as an adjective. So here we are just reminded again, and this is our one and only major point this morning. It doesn't have a number. It just says, to have love is to behave in a loving way. If you're taking notes, don't put number one there. You're going to put number one in just a moment. To have love is to behave in a loving way. So now what we're going to do is we're going to go through, in verses 4 through 7, there are 15 verbs. If you count verse 8, there's 16. We kind of looked at that already, so we're going to do 4 through 7. 15 different verbs here. We're going to number each one and go through them. And as I was preparing this sermon, I realized this is going to be a one-part sermon, and it's probably not going to be a two-part sermon. We're going to take three weeks to go through these 15 verbs. What does it mean to have love or to behave in a loving way? Let's look at the first one here in the ESV. Number one, if you're taking notes, to love is to be patient. To love is to be patient, number one. In the ESV, it simply says love is patient. The word here for patient in the Greek is also translated, and I love this translation. We don't use this in our speech anymore. It used to be more popular, but it really, really, really sufficiently explains what the word means. It's the word long-suffering. Love is long-suffering. That's what patience is. When my children are whining and I just need a moment to just get away and I'm suffering, patience says, I will suffer longer before I do something that I will regret. I'm being long-suffering. That's what patience is. It can also mean to delay a response towards someone. And I say someone very specifically and intentionally. A lot of times we think of patience as, I want to be patient in my circumstances. I'm patient in the midst of some type of a trial or some type of a life event. But if you go back and look in the scriptures, I'm not saying that that's an incorrect use of the word, but the way that the Bible uses this word for patience, as far as I could see in my study, almost every single time, every one that I saw, it applies to being patient towards a person. 
So to be patient in love is to delay one's response towards a person. Think of a delayed reaction. We all have those friends where something funny happens, everyone starts laughing, and then you got the person that takes three seconds, and then they start laughing, and it just took them a little bit longer to get the joke. It was a delayed response. Similar to that, except that in patience, the delayed reaction is typically a hard reaction. I'm frustrated. I'm angry, and I want to lash out in a moment. Maybe it's not lashing out. Maybe it is passive-aggressive. Either way, it's a hard reaction. Someone has done something, and that something may justify a hard reaction, but you choose to hold off your reaction for a time. Many times, our reactions, if we're honest, our hard reactions are more fueled by anger than they are by patience. How do I know that? From experience. I'm the same way. When my children refuse to listen to something that I've said multiple times, or I've given a clear direct order, or if I'm walking through the house and I stub my toe on something after I've already hit my head on the cabinet door that someone else left open, if they had just shut it, I wouldn't have hit my head. And suddenly my anger is starting to fuel the things that I'm thinking and saying instead of patience fueling what I'm thinking or saying. So patience is the way that my reaction is handled. It's either patiently or it's fueled by something else, maybe anger or frustration. You might even have a moment of righteous anger, but even in this moment, patience chooses to delay. Proverbs chapter 29 verse 11 says this, A fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. Some other translations here, instead of full vent to his spirit, say full vent to his anger. So a foolish person, an unwise person, feels anger and just lets it go and just says whatever's going to make them feel better. I just needed to say it. We all have these moments. But a wise man, instead of giving full vent to his spirit, will quietly hold it back. That is patience. Our Lord Jesus Christ was patient for us and is the model of patience. In fact, he is still patient with us today, daily. As he was being beaten with his captors, they were mocking him, clothing him in a crown of thorns, beating him and saying, okay, tell us, who hit you that time if you're a prophet? What they deserved was punishment and judgment. But Jesus did not react. He patiently endured. A reaction was deserved. He delayed that reaction. That reaction is still being delayed even today. The reaction is deserved, and it is just. But Jesus is delaying that, and we refer to it as final judgment when God will finally pour out his wrath against sin. But Jesus was patient, both for their good and for our good. There's not a day that goes by that we don't sin, but God is patient. There's not a day that goes by that we deserve to be alive, but God is patient towards us. 
We spend years and years in rebellion against God, mocking Him, making light of His commandments, making light of His person, but He is patient. The kids and me and Stacy were watching this show. It's called Ultimate Beastmaster. If you've ever seen uh, these obstacle course shows and you have these strong people that are just ridiculous, can do backflips and hang by one hand, and I mean, just uh, insane. Well, there's this obstacle course and people from different countries are competing. And as we're watching this show, there's different commentators from each country. And I thought, this is something really interesting. The commentators for each country, they all know how to speak English. Most of them speak their native tongue, their native language, and they're speaking, but then they will use phrases in English. So one of the phrases that they'll be speaking in their language, let's just say Chinese, they're going, 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 blah, 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 ultimate beastmaster, blah, 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 blah. It's a trademarked title. They probably have to say it in English like that. It's an American show. There's another phrase that they use in English. I thought it's really interesting. They will say, oh my God, when something happens. Someone will miss the jump. They'll hit their face on the metal and you think, ooh, and you'll hear them say that, oh my God. And I thought, this is very interesting, isn't it? I believe they have no idea what they are doing, using, saying, oh my God, like that. It is a reminder for us as we see the way the world speaks against God or treats God lightly, making light of biblical or scriptural things. God is so patient to us because we do the same thing. One of the great questions of history is, why is there evil in the world? People have wrestled and grappled with this question for centuries. And for the Christian, it's a very important question. And at the risk of oversimplifying the answer here, I'm just going to tell you one reason among others. It's because God is patient. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, speaks about the coming of the Lord when he will finally judge all mankind for all the evil ever done. And the question arises, Peter voices this sarcastic question, this hypothetical question that people ask, hey, why has your God not returned yet? He's supposed to come back. You say he's going to be back any day now. Well, he's not back. And guess what? Now, roughly 2,000 years later, guess what? He's still not back. So where is your God? Peter gives an answer. He says in verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Isn't that wonderful? God is so patient, he can wait 2,000 years to exact judgment because he has a hope that more might come to faith and repentance. He allows for that by patience. If God were to suddenly, right now, get rid of all evil in the world, let's just say, to make it personal for me, that God had decided 16, 15, 16 years ago, okay, this is the day that I get rid of all evil in the world because I'm God. 
I would not be going to heaven for eternity. I would not. I wasn't a believer. I didn't have faith. I didn't repent. I said I was a Christian, but I was not. Praise the Lord that he is patient. That is what love does. It acts in patience. Number two, to love is to be kind. To love is to be kind. We see it here in the English plainly as well. Love is patient and kind. doesn't say it quite like that in the Greek. It just says love patiences, love kinds. It is kind toward people. The term here means gentle, warm-hearted, considerate, humane, sympathetic. That is to be kind, to act in kindness. And it's coupled with patience in our English translation, and I actually think this is a good decision. I think this is helpful, because kindness is the reverse of patience. Patience endures something, usually negative, and holds back giving some type of reaction, which is also usually negative. But kindness simply gives what is good even when it isn't deserved. It is giving towards others. Kindness is simply doing something good for another, not because you have to, but because you choose to. You're being kind. You're saying something you wouldn't normally have to say. You're enduring something you normally wouldn't have to endure. We all have these people in our lives that do things that just grate on our nerves sometimes, and we patiently endure. Kindness says, don't just patiently endure, respond with goodness in the midst of your delayed reaction. Now, what this means for us is that to be kind, we have to actually be thinking about other people. That's the idea behind being considerate. We can't do good for another if we are not thinking of one another. You can't be considerate without considering one another. And I think one of the reasons that we often struggle with kindness is because we haven't trained ourselves to be considerate of others. Our default state in our sinful nature is self. I think about me, my, mine. It is hard for us to break this pattern of sinful thinking. And again here, Jesus is a perfect model for us. We don't consider others mostly because we're too busy considering self. In the moment, when I respond, I want to respond according to my fleshly desire. And our flesh doesn't desire kindness by default. Romans chapter 2 verse 4 combines both patience and kindness in speaking about God. Here's what it says. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. So God is being patient and kind toward us in hopes that we will repent, not so that we can continue to do all the things that we want to do. God's patience is kindness because we don't deserve patience. We've already broken. Sometimes we'll tell our kids, I think mistakenly, personal opinion here, 
if I'm being honest, when we tell our kids, like, okay, you know, you did it four times, you get one more. You did it seven times, you get one more, and we just keep going, 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 going. We get so frustrated. That's exactly what we do to the Lord. <laughs> That's exactly what we do. <laughs> All right, God, I'm sorry, what happened again? If he's keeping a ledger right now, he's had to fold through several sheets of parchment on the same sin. <laughs> All right. Number 6,724. All right. <laughs> How many more one chances do you want? We don't deserve patience. He is kind in giving us patience. And in a similar way, our kindness towards others is a tool that the Lord will use to draw them to us and ultimately to himself. In the same way that God's kindness draws us to him, our kindness will draw people to us. Whenever I worked at Sonic in um, Benton, Louisiana, I worked at Sonic. We had just moved back. Stacy was pregnant with Kristen. I've got my first child on the way. I need a job right away while I look for a more stable job. And I had worked at Sonic there growing up. I could skate. I knew if I go back, he'll hire me on the spot, and I'll get full-time hours. And he did. I went back. Gary was very gracious. He said, okay, yep, how many hours you want? I said, I need 40 a week. He said, you got it. What else you want? Uh, you know, I didn't know what to ask for at that point. I was just glad to have 40 hours. I said, great, let's do it. And I'm working, and we're trying to find a church to plug into. I didn't want to go to my childhood church, whole different conversation for another time. I, I didn't want to go there, though we did visit there, okay? To be fair, we did visit. But we have all these different options. Where, where should we go? And as I'm taking out food to people, you know, I'm talking to people. Some people are really kind. They're asking, oh, I don't, I don't, you're not familiar. In Gina, when someone new comes to town, everybody knows. You see him, you're like, oh, I don't recognize you. Where are you from? Same thing happened there. Oh, well, where, where are you from? Well, I grew up here. I moved away. I'm back. Oh, okay, okay. And you get all the time. Do you go to church anywhere? And people would openly talk about Jesus and church and God and these sorts of things. And I would pay attention. A lot of people talked about it. There were some people that consistently were rude <laughs> and unkind at Sonic. I found out where they went to church. It's funny how these patterns reveal themselves. Then there were these people that were consistently kind, always smiling, very gracious. And they didn't even always tip, but they were kind. I loved taking food out to their cars. I found out where many of them went to church. You want to know the first church I visited? That church. <laughs> wow, look, look, these people. I see the fruit of the Spirit in them. When we are kind, we will draw others to ourselves. And hopefully, we will be wise enough to redirect their attention to the Lord, who is the source of our kindness. Number three, to love is to not be jealous. It's hard to say this in the English. The uh, ESV here says, love does not envy. Okay, I think that's also a wonderful way to say it. I'm more familiar with the word jealous, so that's what I've used for our point. The word here being translated actually means to be zealously jealous. To become a rival against for the sake of is one of the roots of that. To be covetousness of another. Now the idea, it's, it's hard to convey, and I think envy does good, I think jealousy does good, 
But you really need two words to convey it. Zealously jealous. The word carries the idea of intense passion. To be intensely passionate about in my jealousy. In fact, the root of the, the Greek word here is actually where we get the term zeal. It's zealous. To be zealously jealous. And to be zealously jealous can be very dangerous. Very dangerous. This is the root of theft and violence. We can think of jealousy in two ways. Number one, I wish that I had that. And number two, I wish that they didn't have that. Two types of jealousy. They're related, and they're often combined, but not always. The first, I wish I had that, is kind of on the lighter side when it comes to emotions and passion. We might even be happy for the person to have that, but man, I really wish I had that. I wish I had that vehicle. I wish I had that paycheck. I wish I had that type of house. I wish I had that family. I wish I had that spouse. I wish I had that friend. I wish I had that personality. I wish I had that gift. Now you'll see as I elevate the situation that the first is already bad in and of itself. But the second goes even further along the scale of emotion. Now not only do I want what the other has, but I don't want them to have it. My emotions are starting to turn negative against them. Now I've moved beyond just bettering myself to actively seeking to take something away from someone else that they have. Jealousy has a way of stirring us up toward this type of thinking, and it can be very destructive. The Bible uses this adjective, bitter, when describing jealousy. I'm going to read James 3, 14 through 16 for us. If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. These are strong words. At the heart of jealousy is the phrase that we just read, selfish ambition. And maybe now as we're starting to work through these verbs, you see a common pattern of self. Jealousy is demonic thinking. It produces vile practices. My action, when coupled with jealousy as the fuel, becomes a vile practice. At this point, one might ask, wait a minute, Brother Garrett. Don't get away here. Doesn't the Bible say that God is a jealous God? So how can jealousy be bad if God is jealous? Well, the Bible paints jealousy sometimes, much like anger, as being good if used properly. 
we will rarely ever, if ever, experience it. Much like the fact that we will rarely ever, if ever, experience righteous anger. We may call something righteous anger. A lot of times it's not. And it's the same thing with this type of jealousy. You'll see what I'm talking about here in a moment. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 through 3. Paul is speaking to the Corinthians again. And he says this, I feel a divine jealousy for you. Since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So Paul is expressing here a divine jealousy for the Corinthians. They are united to Christ but the enemy is seeking to attract them away from their love, tempting them to commit spiritual adultery as a bride of Christ. This jealousy has to do with desiring for what has been stolen to be returned. And namely, it has to do with our belonging to God. The word here. I feel a divine jealousy for you is vitally important. God is jealous for us. He created us, and we belong to him, but Satan steals us for himself, and God is jealous for us. He does not want Satan to have us, not because he's jealous of Satan. Well, I wanted them, but you have them, and I'm just not happy. It's not like that. God is not jealous of Satan. He is jealous for us. He wants us back. I'm glad God is jealous for us in that way. He wants us back. If you have not returned to the Lord... You have never trusted him in faith and repentance, even if maybe you've given lip service to him. Hear this. He wants you. He is jealous for you, zealously jealous for you, both for his own glory and for our good. We will rarely ever, if ever, feel that jealousy. The one that we typically feel is this selfish ambition that produces vile behavior. Envy. This is not love. Number four. To love is to not boast. To love is to not boast. We see here continuing, love does not envy or boast. So again, it kind of couples these two together in the English I'm fine with that. I think it's helpful. The word here is to exhibit self-importance. I think that boasting here is almost the opposite of jealousy in that boasting is celebrating what you have that others don't so that they might recognize it. It's almost like we are inciting one another to jealousy by boasting of what we have. There is no room for boasting in the kingdom of God because boasting implies that we have actually done something significant, that we have something significant to offer. 
But truth be told, we haven't done anything significant. We aren't saved because of what we've done or what we continue to do. We're saved in spite of what we've done and in spite of what we continue to do. The person who thinks he's been good enough to make it to heaven has no idea the holiness of God or the, de the, the depravity of sin or both. Even our good works, when not done in the name of Christ, they condemn us. Because in effect, what we're saying is, I don't really need God in order to be good. Every good work that we do before we come to Christ is me saying, I can be good without God. Which automatically corrupts our actions. This is why the Bible teaches in Romans 14, 23, that whatever is not done from faith is sin. As confusing as that sounds, when put in that way, it makes sense. Sinclair Ferguson, he's a famous Scottish pastor and preacher, said it this way, thinking that I deserve heaven is a sure sign I have no understanding of the gospel. Adrian Rogers, a famous Southern Baptist preacher, three-time president of the SBC, once said this, I wouldn't trust the best 15 minutes I ever lived to get me into heaven. I wish I could say something like that. But you know what? He's right. The best 15 minutes you ever lived is not enough. These men understood what many of us don't. Because of sin, we don't have a single thing to boast about ever. When we are saved, we aren't just saved from bad things and bad works. We need to be saved, especially here in the South, in the Bible Belt. We need to be saved from our good works, too. Because many of us are banking on our values as a good Southern Christian person to get us into heaven. And that will not suffice. Believing the right things about God and having the right values does not save anybody. It is only faith in Christ and repentance from sin. Being born again. Being purchased by Christ. That is the only way anybody will be saved. And some of us haven't done that because we think that we have enough good works to justify my current way of living. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Everything praiseworthy in us is only praiseworthy because of the gracious gift of God in Jesus Christ. All the sin that we commit, that is on us. So we have no reason to boast about anything. Therefore, in our love, we ought not to act pridefully, but humbly. I am merely doing what Christ has done for me. That is love. It does not boast. Number five, our final one this morning. 
To love is to not puff oneself up. I tried to get the Spanish right on this one, though I'm not confident I did. I think maybe it says to swell, to not puff oneself up, to not be arrogant. In the ESV, it says here, uh, does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant. I think that's good, but I think it's helpful for us to know that the phrase is to puff oneself up. Arrogant kind of summarizes that. The definition of this Greek verb here is to be conceived of as being inflated as with air. So it's to act in a way that you might be conceived of that way. It's hard to explain. It's to think of oneself and to present oneself as bigger than he or she actually is, like a blowfish that inflates itself. Or to think of oneself as bigger than those around you, to be conceited. That's the idea behind the Greek here. This is related to boasting, but it's slightly different. Where boasting aims for attention, arrogance is like a delusion. You're deluded. To boast is to declare, to present, to convince. To puff up in arrogance is to actually believe that yourself and continually act on it. Relating this back to our previous example, to boast is to brag about the good works that one has done. To puff up with arrogance is to actually believe that that's enough. To live your whole life as if it's good enough for Judgment Day. That's the epitome of arrogance. Arrogance says, I don't need anything or anyone else. You see this in sports. You've got a hot shot who thinks he can carry the team. You see this in business with coworkers. You see this in family. Arrogance does not belong in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Since we have nothing to boast about, we should have nothing to make us arrogant. Therefore, in the church, we should be the last people to ever think and behave as though we don't need anything or anyone else. First of all, we need Christ. We're all united in that. We all have the same need and the equal need for Christ. So we can't say, I don't need anything or anyone, because we all are desperately in need of Christ. Second of all, we all need each other. That's the whole point of Paul's analogy in chapter 12, the body. Every part of the body needs every other part to be the body. Our arrogance denies our need for others because of an inflated view of self. Maybe an inflated view of your thinking or your intellect or your ability to perform a certain deed. It's inflated. This is where we're going to stop this morning. But I want to remind you, these aren't just actions in and of themselves, though we might get that impression with our English translations. They all describe how we act. Arrogance, kindness, patience, these aren't just things we do. They are how we do the things that we do. Paul wants the Corinthians to make sure that they are treating one another in these ways with their spiritual gifts. And we can apply it to us in the way that we treat one another, not just in our spiritual gifts, but just in how we serve one another. Fulfilling our duty to love one another. What does that look like? It looks like in my speech, I'm going to be patient. 
I will speak patiently. I will speak with kindness. I will speak in a way that I'm not arrogant or boastful. I will speak in a way that I'm not jealous. Maybe my attitude, I will have a patient attitude, a kind attitude. In my posture, in my deeds, this morning, may we also see the love of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is patient and kind towards us despite our jealous, boastful, arrogant hearts. Not desiring that we should perish, but that we might all be saved. This morning, do not be arrogant. Not a single soul will escape judgment without being redeemed by our Lord Jesus Christ through faith and repentance. A book I read uh, recently, I'm still reading, put it very helpfully. Distinguishing between someone who admires Jesus, they have the right values, they believe the right person, and they admire Jesus, but they do not worship Jesus. May that not be true of us this morning. If you're with us this morning and Jesus is not your king or your Lord, I want to simply invite you right now to turn to Jesus and to be forgiven and to be saved from your sin. It can happen in a moment when that heart decides, I trust you, I believe you, and you are mine and I am yours. You can do it right here where you're at. You can voice a prayer. You can do it at home. You can do it out in your backyard. That's where my brother did it, in our backyard, in the grass. My daughter did it in her bed one night. Lord willing, my son will do that one day. The invitation's open for you. If you want to talk to me about what that means, what that looks like, come and grab me after service. Come speak to me sometime this week, and I will be happy to talk to you about it. For the rest of us, may we model the love of our Savior. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you are a loving God. Thank you this morning for fleshing out what it means that you're a loving God, that we might not continue to perceive of you in a way that you have not truly described yourself, that we might rightly understand what it means that you are loving. Thank you for being patient towards us and kind in delaying your wrath against sin so that all might come to faith and repentance. Lord, we know that not all will, but we thank you that you have seen fit to offer it to us freely. Thank you for your patience and kindness. Thank you for modeling for us being content. You need nothing, Lord, and so you are jealous of no one. But we thank you at the same time that you are jealous for us, passionately desiring us, even when we turn astray from you. Lord, thank you for demonstrating for us what it looks like to live without boasting, Thank you for modeling, Lord Jesus, what it's like to come as a humble servant, to not boast 
or exalt self, to not act in arrogance, but to simply act out of your character and love towards us. Lord God, would you teach us to love others as you have first loved us? And for those in this room, Lord, that do not know you, they have been trusting in their own values, their own deeds and actions. They've been trusting in something that has never been designed to save them. It is not powerful enough to save them. Lord, I pray that you would remove the veil from their eyes that they might see that they need to trust you, worship you as Lord and King, Savior and God, to turn to you in faith, in repentance. Lord, we thank you for the work that you've done in us this morning, and we ask that you would continue this work in us this week. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.